Irish Nation. Welcome back to the third episode of Gyrish Talk. I'm your co-host, Brett, and for the first time, Gyrish Talk is coming to you live. Indeed, we're coming to you live. Well, not live for you, but live for us from Sacramento, or as Brett likes to call it, the Ohio of California. So deep in the heart of California, we're actually staying with some fellow Irish alums who may be giving us some side-eye right now as we speak. As always, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to our podcast. Please rate us, write a review, tweet us. We love hearing from our fans. And even more exciting, when we post this podcast on Monday, our listeners will be six days from the greatest day of the year. Six days from what I consider to be my Christmas, the most anticipated day in the year, the day I get Buddy the Elf level excited. Yeah, that's right. It's FSU week. Return to Notre Dame football and the season opener. So, so Brett, what are we covering in this week's show? I plan on our whole day. First, we'll make snow angels for two hours, and then we'll go ice skating, and then we'll eat a whole roll of Toll House cookie dough as fast as we can, and then, to finish, we'll snuggle. Don't think we're going to follow Buddy the Elf's agenda, but we're going to start with answering listener questions. We're going to do some news and notes to wrap up the offseason, a quick update on COVID's impact on Notre Dame football, and then we'll spend most of the time previewing the Florida State game. Ready to dive in? Let's do it. What's your favorite color? All right, a lot of great questions this week. No one asked what my favorite color is, but in case if you're wondering, it's green. But a lot of other great questions from our listeners for this week's mailbag section. Uh, last week, we got asked about what ND beat writers do we follow. And, and Mike, this week, we had a question come in on, on the data analytics side. What, what websites and resources do, do we recommend? What metrics do we love to follow the most? Uh, absolutely. Bill Connolly, now at ESPN, founded SP+. Plus. He's someone that we reference frequently. It Look, it's not perfect. Certainly has its limitations. But I think it's about as good as you're going to get from a game predictability standpoint. Uh, football efficiency from Football Outsiders is good. Pro Football Focus Grades. And CollegeFootballData.com also has a lot of advanced metrics. For recruiting, 247 and Rivals are both great. Personally, I prefer 247. I think their composite is the standard right now for recruiting. Brett mentioned the blue chip ratio uh, last last podcast. Again, that's a 247 special. That ratio in particular is a great quick metric to see how teams' overall talent levels stack up against each other. Yeah, and this is something on the data analytics side we're continuing to build out. We're, we're three weeks into this podcast, but we've created a database in the background that tracks all this stuff, pulls in from a number of different sources, Notre Dame-specific but also how we stack up against the national landscape. This is going to allow us to bring you all those advanced stats each week. We're going to talk a lot about explosiveness, a lot about havoc rates, expected points added, stuff rates, success rates. You'll you'll hear that today as we dive into the Florida State preview. You'll also hear that as we recap games throughout the season. So the numbers inside the numbers that contextualize how Notre Dame's doing, what the trajectory of the program is, a lot of it coming from those data sources. Next listener question, could you preview the special teams, returns, punters, and kickers? Yeah, first off, uh, our sincere apologies to the very critical special teams unit. Look, kickers are players too. We're not denying that. For the record, we are actually a pro-kicker podcast. They often get all the downside of blame for a loss without nearly as much credit for success. Pretty tough position to be in. If you watched Notre Dame special teams last year, you'll see the same key players. Jay Bramlett is back at punter, as is Jonathan Doerr at kicker. Bramlett probably won't be playing in the NFL, but he's very solid and is continuing to improve. He was actually top 20 on net punt average last year, so very effective, very good hang time, very good placement. Multiple beat writers have made comments about how impressive his hang time has been out of camp this year, so high expectations for him. Dora was lights out in 2019, connecting on 85% of his field goals. Just very consistent, very steady, one of the best uh, performances from a kicker we've had since I've been a fan. However, he did have a pretty big drop-off last year, only 65%, which was outside the top 100. He was huge in the first Clemson game, 4 for 5, but he also missed at least one field goal in six straight games to end the season, only hitting three of his final eight attempts. A recent ND Insider interview with Coach Pollan suggested that a lot of that drop-off was from mental and physical fatigue due to the COVID season. I think think overall we're hopeful that he's going to find his 2019 form and have a strong year for us. Yeah, and then in the return game, uh, Chris Tyree's back on kickoffs, really dynamic. We, we talked about him in the run game, uh, also a you know, very special, special teamer. On punt returns, Matt Salerno, the walk-on, he's the fair catch specialist. Uh, news out of camp, Tyree, Kevin Austin, Lorenzo Styles Jr., 
Uh, he's the freshman speedster. All have been getting work in, in the punt return game. Kelly, historically very conservative on punt returns. We'll see now that he's got players like Chris Tyree, if, if he'll open that up a little bit. Otherwise, expect Matt Salerno to be back there waving his hand a lot. Yeah, and I think I think one note I'll make real quick, Brett, is if we're looking for the special team's effectiveness uh, back in, in the 80s with the Rocket, that's, that's not feasible anymore. The rules have changed in special teams where it's a lot harder to return punts and kick returns for touchdowns. So because of that, I think that's why, in addition to some of these other reasons that Brett had mentioned, why we tend to be a little bit more conservative with our return units. Yep, avoid mistakes, you know, pre- prevent game-changing momentum swings, and, and just stay focused on solid field position. Definitely, yeah. The upside is just, it's just not there anymore. Um, last question for the week from Brian. No, how, no matter how much I hear about how great of a coach Marcus Freeman actually is, all this talk of an aggressive blitzing defense still gives me the BVGBs. Not bad. That's solid. That's what more great. can you say to convince me these fears are unfounded? I think every single time this year the defense gives up a big play, we're, we're going to bring back BVGBs as a uh, recurring segment <laughs> in the podcast. Yeah. Um, look, biggest similarity between Freeman and BVG is pre-snap exotic looks. I think that's where you hear a lot of this kind of concern. It's going to be more complicated than it used to be. But in reality, post-snap, it's very different. BVG had very exotic plays, coverages, blitz schemes, guys coming from all over the place, stunts with the defensive line. And then he combined that with really exotic coverages in the back end, uh, oftentimes putting safeties and corners and in, in just really tough matchups in, in the open field. I think Freeman, from what we've read out of camp, he's more focused on disguising everything at the line of scrimmage before the ball is snapped. But then once the ball snapped, executing relatively simple concepts and letting the players just go play. It's a key distinction. Another key distinction is just, frankly, how aggressive Brian Van Gorder was with, with his blitzes. Uh, Brian Driscoll from Sports Illustrated noted that a lot of what Freeman's scheme describes as blitzes is often only four rushers, maybe five. Because he runs a three-three-five scheme with three linemen, three backers, and five defensive backs, he might be bringing three defensive linemen and one or two linebackers and it looks like a blitz. Compare that to Brian Van Gorder, who is bringing all four linemen plus a linebacker. Or, even worse, overload blitzes with six rushers. Look, Freeman's going to be—he's going to bring pressure from a lot of areas, but I wouldn't expect to see the all-or-nothing risk that Brian Van Gorder became notorious for, and which backfired multiple times uh, on the biggest stages. Yeah, and gl- glad you brought up the three-three-five scheme that Freeman was known for at Cincinnati. Jamie Uyayama, Irish Sports Daily, had a good observation on Freeman at Cincy. Freeman wasn't always a 3-3-5 coach. He was in a conference at Cincinnati that had a lot of air raid and a lot of tempo spread teams. Houston, uh, SMU, UCF, Memphis, Tulane, among others. So Cincy basically adopted to that conference's competition and and switched to that 3-3-5 scheme where they're effectively spending entire games in nickel and dime packages. And that meant defensive backs were on the field a lot. So Yuyama's observed in camp that Freeman is starting to adopt to Notre Dame's roster, but also our schedule. And you might not see that 3-3-5 as, as much. You're going to see maybe something more of a hybrid in between with a rover position or, or the new name for rover is sniper. And so I think where you see that blitz rate coming from you're now going to be having another 275-pound defensive lineman on the field or a 240-pound sniper or rover rather than the 180-pound nickel corner. And I just think that size is going to allow us to bring a higher havoc rate than maybe Freeman was used to at Cincinnati without having to bring the house. Yeah, and Brett, I think I think what you're saying hits on a point that we covered in some of our uh, in our last two podcasts, where with Freeman, he's just a very flexible coach. He's going to adapt his scheme. He's going to adapt to the players on the roster. Um, and and for, I would say all great coaches need to have that characteristic, and we're we're already starting to see that. So I think that's a good sign. Absolutely. You know, just to wrap this up, I think the simplicity of what Freeman tries to bring uh, and the way he adapts to the players on the field. I'm going to try to do everything I can to avoid uh, BVG comparisons until we, you know, maybe see something on the field that warrants that. So with that, we're going to pivot away uh, from listener questions. Love these as always. Keep sending them. They, they give us a lot of fun things to look up each week. And with that, we're going to turn to some final news and notes from the last days of fall camp. It's nice to meet another human who shares my affinity for elf culture. Just want to thank our listeners again who share our affinity for, for ND football culture. 
Um, that being said, let's pivot to off-season news and notes. Off-season, it can often feel as chaotic as the 2011 South Florida game, which, uh, from, from my experience, was basically a nightmare. Honestly, the great thing is this is just, it's been a relatively quiet camp. Credit to the stability of the program, the strong culture. I think we're as good, we're in as good of a place as I can remember in these areas. Uh, knock on wood, only a couple injuries. We did have a big one. We'll touch on that today. No suspensions. QB controversy resolved early. Overall, pretty clean camp. Much better than what you typically see at programs like Georgia. And that's a take that I think the old ball coach Steve Spurrier would agree with. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, j- just to emphasize how, uh, clean this camp has been. Tommy Reese rocking a mustache was one of the biggest headlines last week. Uh, as you can imagine, it caused a lot of stir for the ladies of Notre Dame and not in a good way. That stash definitely needs to go before kickoff. I think I've seen some pictures. I think it's gone now. So, Thank goodness. Yeah, it is gone. So, you know, he's, he's out now. The mustache is gone. He's ready to go out in the town. Exactly. Um, but also on, on the topic of Tommy Reese, happy recovered him, happy recovery to him from an appendectomy. Pretty active week or so for the young coordinator between this and the mustache. Uh, we're actually bringing on our in-house doctor for a 15-minute segment on appendectomies at the end of this podcast. Or I don't, or maybe not. Brett actually no, just shot me. Uh, he just, he just vetoed that. Yep, so nope. uh, on a serious note, it sounds like Reese will be good to go for the opener. Yeah, and switching over to the story on Coach Freeman, or, or Coach Free as the players are calling him these days, we wanted to cover one story from earlier this summer. It's a little bit dated, but think it gives Irish fans – a little insight into who he is as a coach and, and also who he is as a person. Uh, when he was first hired, he really challenged Kelly to redefine what the quote-unquote Notre Dame right kind of guy looks like, uh, not just focusing on prep schools, not just focusing on traditional families or students with a 32 ACT test score, but redefining what that looks like. Kids who show up to class, uh, kids who attend school are really engaged, maybe not just test results. And there was one specific story they shared of, Freeman and Kelly visiting an inner city kid, single family home, raised by his mom, um, and by all accounts, uh, a recruit we were really tracking and a visit that went really well. And afterwards, Kelly uh, looked at Freeman and said, wow, I love that kid. We need him on the roster. He's exactly who we need in the program. And Freeman didn't let it go. Uh, he, he didn't just stop there. He challenged Kelly further and said, coach, Notre Dame wouldn't have recruited that kid three years ago. And, and I just think not letting that moment go, um, addressing some important issues, bringing a different perspective to the program, a different level of inclusive and, and diversity and culture, uh, I think really says a lot about Freeman. It says a lot about Kelly being open to that change. Um, and I think a really nice step in, in the direction. Uh, Mike, you want to cover a couple of the roster updates? Yeah, definitely. So I think one of the bigger ones is that the offensive line – Seemingly has been locked down with true freshman Blake Fisher at left tackle, Zeke Coral at left guard, Jarrett Patterson at center, Kane Madden at right guard, and Josh Lugg at right tackle. Uh, I think this lineup is pretty much what everyone, everyone expected it to be. So no big shockers here. I think, um, I think going into the season, it's just good to have that certainty. There were no surprises here. So hopefully these, these guys can, uh, they can, they can continue to build on their cohesiveness and their chemistry and really improve as the season goes on. For sure. Blake Fisher, the last piece of the puzzle to officially be announced, true freshman. I can't remember the last time we've had a true freshman start on the line, let alone at tackle. Um, you know, and, and so I think Kelly talking up Fisher, saying he's the best guy at the spot currently, um, has even made some comparisons to Ronnie Stanley um, in terms of, you know, size and athleticism and everything else. I, I think bodes well to, to his future. Last news on the roster coming out of camp, uh, really a down note this week, Maris Luafau, uh lost for the season with what appears to be a foot injury. They're saying lower leg injury. You know, this one sucks. Likely starter. Um, thankfully, an area where we've got a lot of depth. But, you know, thinking of Maris, really tough way to start the season. Definitely. He, word out of camp is they were expecting him to be minimum a solid starter, with the upside of being potentially a game changer. So he's sure. one of those guys where, unfortunately, we're not really going to know what we're missing here. This guy could be a, a JOK, JOK level player, and, and we won't know, unfortunately. Yep. That being said, we do have a lot of depth. So if there was a position that this happens at, uh, this, this is the one where we can weather it the best. Uh, one other note is that we've been hearing from Irish Sports Daily 
that the radar is up on a connection between Under Armour shoes and these foot injuries. There's no convincing evidence, but word is that people are taking note of it. There, there is some intrigue on the number of foot injuries that we've had recently, and they're wondering, wondering why. A couple names just off the top of our heads. Aaron Banks, he had a foot injury. Kevin Austin, Jarrett Patterson, Jemaine Franklin, now Lewifile. That's that's quite a few names in the last couple of years. Um, yeah, and for for relatively freak injuries, right? I mean, you know, torn ACLs, I get it. Broken collarbones, I get it. Concussions, you know, like those are kind of more regular injuries. But seeing guys go down with stress fractures in their feet and list Frank injuries, it's just um, it, it seems to be something that Notre Dame should should definitely look into. But that's it for our mailbag questions of the week. Uh, rate us, tweet us, reach out with more questions. We, we love these. Great way for us to kick off the show. Uh, now let's turn it to our first topic of the week and dive into how the COVID pandemic continues to impact college football. Good news. I saw a dog today. Well, good news. I have seen a dog today. Uh, bad news. The COVID pandemic is still ongoing. Uh, just today, as we're recording this, Notre Dame announced that vaccines will not be required. For fans attending games, masks are optional. That's the big news coming out of campus today. Yep, breaking news. We're not infectious disease experts. We're pumped. We're definitely pumped to see Notre Dame have a 95% vaccination rate for the roster. And the rate's pretty close for that to that for the student body and faculty as well. But uh, overall, disappointed by the university's policies. For sure. I mean, look, the Delta variant uh, is going to continue to impact our society, impact college football. Um, you know, I'm not going to speculate on cancellations of games or whether or not there's going to be changes to how many fans can be in the stands. But when you see LSU requiring vaccines for fans in the stands, pretty shocking that Notre Dame isn't on the more strict side of this, especially considering how strict, uh, Father Jenkins, university president and the rest of the administration was last year with the student body. Yeah, I will note with LSU, so they are requiring vaccines, but if you have a negative COVID test, that, that also works too. Got it. Although, obviously, the vaccines, if you're vaccinated, you don't even have to like worry about a positive test. So, um, but anyway, so before that news broke, we did want to talk about how COVID has led to uh, considerations in NCAA rules, namely an extra year of eligibility and changes to the transfer rules. Um, and I think a big consideration for ND is how, how they're ev- handling that evolving landscape of roster management. For sure. Starting with the transfers. So the NCAA has basically made transfers into free agencies. Um, historically, if you transferred, you'd have to sit out one season. And that was a pretty big deterrent for whether or not a student would want to transfer to a different team. They've now waived that where you don't have to sit out that season at a new school. Um, and it's, it's, you know, opened up the door. We're, we're going to talk about this a little later, but. Florida State's had a total of 30 players either transfer into or out of the program this year. Um, just a wild number as you think about, you know, college football really almost taking on a professional um, sports atmosphere in the offseason with, with all these transfers going on. Yeah, I'm going to throw in one more point. One word that any NBA fan just hears all the time, tampering. So there are, there are a lot of anecdotal stories uh, that, that have been occurring that you're hearing from assistant coaches, head coaches. Um, and the takeaway is that a lot of these players who are entering the transfer portal, they, a lot of them know where they're going by the time they, they get into that portal. So as the rules stand right now, coaches from other programs are not supposed to be contacting, uh, players from other teams, but it does seem to some extent that this is happening. There's no, there's not a ton of like hard evidence on it, but you are hearing from a lot of people within the college football landscape that this is something that is happening. Yeah, it's, it's definitely an area where, you know, NCA was quick to make a rule change. Not sure if they've set up the protocols to really track and monitor this ahead of time. Seems, seems a little short-sighted. But turning to Notre Dame and, and how the transfer portal has impacted the Irish, two big names we've talked a lot about are starting quarterback Jack Cohn, transfer from Wisconsin. Kane Madden, our right guard, coming in as an All-American from Marshall. Uh, not sure we get those guys if it's not for these rule changes in, in getting immediate eligibility um, as the NCAA has responded to COVID. So two major reasons to not feel as concerned about Notre Dame's low rate of returning production from last year's team is we're bringing in guys like Jack Cohn and Kane Madden from, from the transfer portal. Definitely. Um, and on the flip side, ND lost 16 players to transfer. Unlike Florida State, however, none of these players were going to be starters this year. A couple guys in the two deep like Dylan Gibbons, maybe Jack Lamb, Jordan Genmarth-Heath, uh, who might have had a chance, uh, these guys might have had a chance to play if, if injuries occur. Jordan Genmarth-Heath actually won a starting position at UCLA. It was just announced. So 
Uh, and he likely, I'm sure we would have been able to use him for depth, but unlikely he's starting here. For sure. And, you know, we, we just mentioned the Maris Luafau, uh, injury. That, that might have been a place for yeah. Dan Markeith or, or Lamb to step up. So of, of the 16 guys, linebacker, probably the area where, you know, felt like transfer portal maybe hurt us a little bit. And then flipping to the extra year of eligibility. So the NCAA has granted an extra year of eligibility for all players. Last year basically doesn't count. So, you know, fifth year seniors can be sixth year seniors. Fourth year seniors can be fifth year seniors. Um, and as we mentioned, Notre Dame lacks a lot of returning production. We're 109th in returning usage rate on offense, just as one example. So Notre Dame, unlike a lot of programs we're going to talk about this year, not really taking advantage of that extra eligibility. A lot of our seniors graduated on schedule. Uh, that's a big part of Notre Dame's mission. Kelly talks about graduating champions all the time. And then we had a lot of guys go to the NFL. Yeah, and that happens for big programs. Brett, you mentioned 109th in returning usage, so that equates to about 45% of our passing, rushing, and receiving coming back. Really low. But Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State are even worse than that. They deal with this this issue all the time. Great teams, they reload. They don't just rebuild. So if we are truly starting to approach the level of those programs, I think we need to show that we won't have a big drop-off after so many departures. So I think this should be a very telling year for what our future trajectory is with this program. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. I think this extra year of eligibility has really strained other programs um, as they try to deal with roster management in a way that we don't have to deal with, and you're really seeing that play out in recruiting. So a lot of other programs, when you're held to 85 scholarships, um, they don't have roster spots now that the entire uh, team can basically come back for an extra year. So therefore, they're not as aggressive in recruiting. They can't just literally sign as many recruits. Notre Dame stepped up in a big way there where we haven't had players take advantage of the extra eligibility, or at least not as many. And now what you're seeing is right now we're the number one recruiting class in 2022. That'll likely fall. There's sort of a wave where Notre Dame gets our recruits early and maybe doesn't play for five stars that recruit later. So I'd expect us to see that fade a little bit. I can't remember the last time, though, that we've been top five in a recruiting class, um, let alone number one heading into a football season. And 2023, also off to a great start. So you're seeing a lot of other programs hang on to fifth and sixth year seniors. Notre Dame's taking a different approach. We're going out and letting our seniors graduate. And then we're, frankly, upgrading talent via recruiting uh, by bringing in a lot more four-star, a lot more uh, five-star talent. And, and just as an aside, I think you're going to see that, um, you know, really play itself out over three, four, five years. I, I, I don't think this is going to be a one-year impact as, as you see these fifth and sixth-year players hang around college football really for the next several years. Yeah, I think... One other point I'm going to make is, so we mentioned how with COVID eligibility, how there are more people who are sticking with programs and it's creating some complications with roster management. In the past, when Notre Dame started out hot on the recruiting trail, as Brett mentioned, we typically fall off. We've started hotter than we normally do. I think another thing to consider is maybe some of the teams that had such significant surges, they may not be able to do it to quite the same extent this year. They may just not have essentially the roster capacity. So I think that is something to certainly monitor as we move forward and maybe limits to the extent to which Notre Dame could fall off their current recruiting ranking. Um, but anyway, so to wrap up this COVID section, uh, the long-term impact of transfers, extra eligibility, recruiting impact, I think we'll continue to see that play out over several years um, just with as, as teams deal with roster management. Between big transfers like Conan Madden and a noticeable uptick in recruiting, I do feel good about where NT stands as a result of this changing landscape. Okay, that wraps up our off-season previews. Uh, Garish Talk is officially done with summer camp, and it's time to get everyone uh, prepped for the season opener. He's an angry elf. There were certainly a lot of angry elves in Tallahassee last year. They stunk, and the fan base wasn't happy, and that starts with the coach. Mike Norvell, he's 39 years young, entering his second season at Florida State. And, and really, that came after an absolutely awesome four-year run at Memphis. And before that, Irish fans might uh, regrettably remember Norvell as the offensive coordinator at Arizona State. Uh, back in 2014, when he was leading the offense, they, they put up 55 points on us. So, you know, he's he's had our number before, but uh, not the best start out of Tallahassee in, in year one. Definitely a disappointment with his first campaign. Three and six, failed to look competitive, really in all but one game, where they beat a UNC team that was top five at the time. But... As a whole, felt like a continuation of the Willie Taggart era. 
however, I will say it is year one and really is tough of a first year to ask for as a new coach during during the COVID year. Yeah, but I think we got to double click on what a bad season looks like. And, and just by comparison to, you know, Brian Kelly's worst season when Notre Dame was four and eight in 2016, you know, that was a statistical fluke. They were one and seven in one score games. They lost a game against Duke when we had a 93% post game win expectancy. There was the hurricane game against NC State that just had no business even being played. And a USC game where we had an 82% game, uh, post game win expectancy. So that was just a weird four and eight season. Florida State season last year didn't look like that. Yeah. For our listeners, uh, just real quick, in case you don't know what post-game win expectancy means, it's uh, advanced stat that looks at points per scoring opportunity, yards per play, success rate, etc. Things like, are you going to get five-plus yards on a first down? Are you converting third and short? Havoc rate. Is your defensive line generating pressure on the QB or getting first contact behind the line of scrimmage on running plays? Then it all thro- it throws all those plays into the sausage machine and says, if those plays happen again... What are the odds that you would win? Yeah, so just to play out that example, I mentioned the 2016 USC game. Essentially, Notre Dame lost 45 to 27. We, we got blown out. Um, but we had an 82% post-game win expectancy. Why was that? We were just really unlucky. They had a punt return for a touchdown. They had an interception return for a touchdown. They had a kickoff return for a touchdown. Basically, everything that could have gone wrong in that game went wrong. Um, just really fluky plays. Um, the type of stuff that, you know, in Madden that, you know, makes you throw your controller at the wall. Um, you know, I, I know I've never, ever done anything like that in my life. Uh, <laughs> but that was effectively the 2016 season. So, like, how's that compare to Florida State last year? Uh, they, they flat out stunk in their six losses. I don't know. Maybe that sounds a little harsh, but look, in their last six, in their six losses, the best post game win expectancy was 4%. Really bad. That's that's not bad luck or close games not going your way. They got trounced by a four and seven Louisville squad, forty eight to sixteen. They had a zero percent win expectancy in that game. If those same plays happen again, Florida State would pretty much never mathematically have a chance to win. That's that's just flat out bad any way that you slice it. Yeah, and looking at some other metrics, you know, their offense was below average. They were seventy eighth in the country out of one hundred twenty seven teams in expected points added. They were 79th in success rate. They were 69th in explosiveness. Those are metrics we're going to talk a lot about uh, throughout the season. And, you know, that's out of the entire nation. Really, really bad amongst other ACC programs. And it, it started in the trenches. Pro Football Focus rated the Knowles offensive line at 107 out of 127 in the country. So quarterback was constantly under duress. Running backs were constantly getting hit behind the line of scrimmage. Um, really just a long season. And and uh, just to pause and explain what some of those stats mean. So I mentioned expected points added. That measures how many points you're expected to score from an individual play. Um, success rate, that means uh, on first downs, you get 50% of the yards to go. Uh, on second downs, you get 70% of the yards to go. On third down, do you get a first down? Um, same on fourth down. And then the last one I mentioned, explosiveness. Uh, that says on your successful play. So when you have a successful play, say more than five yards on first and 10, was it really successful? Was it a 20 yard gain, a 30 yard gain? Did it really put points on the board or, or put you in a position to put points on the board because it was a big play? Yeah. So, so Florida's, as Florida State's average play contributed to 0.16 points and they were only successful 42% of their offensive plays. For comparison, Alabama's EPA was 0.45 and Notre Dame's was 0.25. Yeah, and, you know, that's just on the offensive side of the ball where I'd say it was below average. It got even worse on defense. They were 101st in EPA. Uh, They were 111th in success rate. Um, And, you know, the only way to overcome uh, EPA and, and success rate if you're a defense is to create havoc. So havoc measures tackles for loss, quarterback pressures, passes deflected, fumbles, interceptions. Basically, if the other team is generating chunky yard plays, play after play after play, the only way you have to stop them is to come up with a big play yourself, and that's to generate havoc. Uh, for Florida State, they were also outside the top 100 in havoc rate. So when you do those things as a defense, when you give up big plays, and when you can't put a team dead in their tracks, it's going to be a long season. Okay, so turning the corner to this current Florida State roster this just isn't one of those Florida State teams of old with blue chip recruits all over the place. 
and you know if you get if you get the right coach in, they could just come in, flip a switch, and they're and they're dangerous all of a sudden. This team does have talent, uh, but I would say with an asterisk. Norville's had back to back circa top twenty recruiting classes. The upperclassmen are from top ten classes, but it's a noticeable tick down from the steady top five classes that you saw in the Jimbo Fisher years. Um, this team has also had a, just a, a massive transfer exodus. When Jimbo left for Texas A&M four years ago, there were all sorts of stories and rumors of toxic culture the last few years of his tenure really following uh, their 2013 season national championship. You hear things about uh, the really low academic uh, academic ratings, just a lack of discipline, a bunch of players getting in trouble with the law, things like that. So really, really disastrous, and it, it culminated in a, in a pretty bad final year for Jimbo. Yeah, and I, I think that really put Willie Taggart, who took over after Jimbo Fisher, in, in a really tough spot in, in his two-year stay in Tallahassee. And more of the same with Norvell. Last year, Norvell, in his first season as the coach, there was a lot of stuff on his response to social justice issues and whether or not he was creating more problems in the locker room. And and all of that's just starting to show in recruiting. It's starting to show in transfers. And, and the way to really quantify that, last week we talked about the blue chip ratio. Mm-hmm. So your ratio of four and five star players to three stars and below in, in your program. And really anything below 50% is considered the threshold where you're just not legitimately able to compete for a title. Um, you're not going to be one of the top 15, 20 teams in the country. Jimbo was comfortably above that 50% blue chip ratio in his tenure. And it continued into the Taggart and Norvell era as Jimbo's recruiting still kind of had an impact um, in, in the upperclassmen. And that's no longer the case. You know, Notre Dame consistently in the high 50s were above that 50% threshold again. And now for the first time, uh, really, I think in the last decade, Florida State's fallen below that key 50% threshold. So this this just isn't a roster loaded with four- and five-star talent anymore mm-hmm. like we've maybe grown accustomed to in, in Tallahassee over the years. Yeah, for 247, they're not even listed among the top 16 teams for the blue-chip ratio. Uh, 247 did note that if they have a couple really good recruiting classes, they could climb back above that 50% ratio. So they're not they're not dramatically below it, but um, they're certainly not at the just, level. Just of, definitely a drop-off from, from yes, prior years. definitely, definitely. And then, again, another point that I mentioned earlier, onto the transfers. Uh, 18 players transferring out since the beginning of last year's football season. That's 20% of scholarship players. Uh, seven of those were actually top 300 prospects. Two of those players literally transferred out this week. I mean... FSU has had more turnover than a seventh grade basketball game. <laughs> yeah, and you know, on the flip side of that, so 18 players have left. They've had 12 players transfer in, but none of those were top 300 high school recruits. So you're really replacing four and five star talent with three star talent. Not a good trend. Um, one recruit or one transfer that I just wanted to give a shout out to Dylan Gibbons, senior. He transferred from Notre Dame. He was never to, you know, really able to break through. Um, the depth chart on our offensive line and, and secure a starting role or, or really even any meaningful playing time to speak of, but graduated from Notre Dame, wish him the best of luck. Just, you know, hope, hope, hope he has a bad game, uh, in week one and, and a great rest of the season. Definitely. Um, I think he, I think he's secured a starting position. For Florida yeah. State. He's, he, he's on their starting line. And, and, you know, just to kind of conclude talking about talent. Did teams on paper, you know, Notre Dame's played a lot of these types of teams that were maybe underperforming, but were a real threat to give us a scare. I think about that five and seven USC team in 2018, where we beat them 24 17 in the last game of the season to secure a playoff spot or eight and four LSU in the 2014 Music City Bowl. But just as we look across this roster, really want to emphasize to our listeners that this just isn't that same top tier talent. And Notre Dame should have a clear advantage on the field just in terms of blue chippers out there. So with that, Mike, though, a lot of pessimism about Florida State heading into the season. Why should Irish fans be worried? So their offensive line was pretty abysmal last year, but they return all five starting offensive linemen this year. As we mentioned before, they bring in Dylan Gibbons, who, like we said, was a backup at Notre Dame, but definitely an upgrade for an offensive line unit that was, as I said, bad last year. I think one other thing to take into account is the fact that a reserve lineman at Notre Dame was able to walk in 
and start. That should tell us something about the difference in quality between the Notre Dame and, and Florida State uh, offensive line rooms. For, for sure. And at the skills position, I think this is where Florida State fans are most excited this year. It's their biggest headline is, is on their quarterback situation. They also have a transfer quarterback, Mackenzie Milton. Uh, for those who don't know Mackenzie Milton, he transfers in from UCF uh, two seasons ago, had a horrific leg injury. Um, you know, Alex Smith level comeback story to see him now come back. He was a Heisman contender in 2018 before that injury. Um, so really, really incredible to see him back in college football competing for a starting spot. Um, they haven't announced a starter yet. Norvell appears like he's going to drag that out until kind of the last few days leading up to this opener. But I think a lot of the smoke coming out of Tallahassee is that Milton is the likely starter. Um, possibly one of the best comeback turnaround stories in college football this year. Again, similar to Dylan Gibbons, really pulling for Mackenzie Milton. Just hope that his uh, great season starts in week two uh, after the Irish are already out of town. Yeah, definitely. Um, and th- so moving on, the team's leading returning rusher is last year's starting QB, Jordan Travis. Um, if Travis plays, this, this could be a matchup problem for the Irish. We've struggled against mobile QBs, even with subpar throwing ability. Uh, thinking of Juwan Pass at Louisville, Bryce Perkins at UVA. Uh, those are just a couple examples that immediately come to mind. Yeah, so, you know, if, if you're a Notre Dame fan, you're either going to get a mobile quarterback in Jordan Travis that might be a matchup problem or a former Heisman contender in, in Mackenzie Milton. So that's reason number one, I think, to be worried about this team. At running back, Josh Corbin, um, probably the best player on this team. Durable, hard-nosed running back. He was an Auburn transfer after the 2019 season. You know, last year he ran behind a, a really bad offensive line, not not to beat that point too much, but he still managed five yards of carry, and that was, you know, facing a lot of contact behind the line of scrimmage and, and still turning out, um, you know, positive running plays. So I think that's an area where you're going to see them really lean into Corbin and, and the running game. Yep. Passive game, a lot of question marks. Uh, returning receivers, Ontario Wilson, just 31 catches last year. Beat writers are talking a lot about tight end uh, Cameron McDonald, uh, speedster Keyshawn Helton as well, and then also Kansas transfer Andrew Parchment. But I think overall the message here is that it, it's certainly not uh, a unit of strength. Yeah, I think offense definitely going to be a run-first Mike Norvell team. That's also what he did at Memphis in sort of a RPO scheme. A lot of tempo, but run-first. Seems like that's going to be the the seminal offense this year as well. Turning to the defense, um, could not ask for a more perfect matchup in Game 1 of the Jack Cohn-Notre Dame era. The Knolls were dead last in the ACC in sacks. They have no returning production with more than two and a half tackles for a loss last year. So really, I think it sets up favorably for, for Jack Cohn to come in and, and get his feet wet, albeit in a road game, hostile environment. Um, but you know, overall, don't expect a lot of pressure from from the Seminole defense. Definitely. In the back end, the Knolls were actually pretty solid last year, but that was led by uh, Asante Samuel, and he's, he's in the NFL now, playing on Sundays. Yeah, and, and so not a lot of returning production in the secondary. The linebackers do have all three starters back. Um, one of those leaders, though, is Emmett Rice. He, he's injured in spring practice. From what we're hearing, he's not been practicing. Appears he won't be playing at the start of the season. Um, so again, just recurring theme here on this defense, not a lot of production back, some injuries, some of their better talent was lost to the NFL draft. Um, just not a strong unit. Yep. Um, key takeaways for the game. You know, I, I think Notre Dame is expected to win 72% of the time for ESPN. Vegas has them as, uh, has us as seven and a half point favorites. Um, I think that's down a bit from the opening line of nine points. Um, so Brett, how, how can things go wrong here for Notre Dame? Yeah, look, our offense should be a major mismatch for Florida State's defense. We should be able to move the ball and put up points. But as we talked about in our first episode, the Irish are working in a new offensive line, uh, four new starters for us, don't know if they're going to gel yet, a new quarterback in Jack Cohn. So the script for Florida State is if Cohn makes a mistake or two, throws an interception, and the offensive line maybe takes you know a few series to really gel and, and be able to, you know, start moving the line of scrimmage to drive the run game. If, if that gets off to a slow start, just given the number of new pieces there, that keeps this game close. It keeps Florida State in it. We're on the road and then anything can happen. Absolutely. There are a lot of question marks for Florida State's offense, but reason for optimism. 
Uh, if Mackenzie Milton returns to form and the returning offensive line for FSU takes a big stride in the offseason, it's possible this FSU offense is a borderline top 25 unit. Uh, with Milton in particular, we know how, like, the level that he can play at when he's healthy. So uh, if he is there, I, I would imagine, like, a pretty significant uptick in production from the QB, QB position. Uh, that being said, I wouldn't put money on it. Yeah, I mean, there's potential for this to be a top 25 unit, but I, I just really don't see that happening. I'm, I'm feeling pretty confident about this game, and, and I don't say that a lot. Like, look, I'm pretty measured on where this team is this year, 9-10 wins, but mm-hmm. uh, I think on this game I'm absolutely um, taking Notre Dame to, to cover the spread and, and comfortably win this one by double digits. Okay, double digits. So what's your score prediction? I think it's Irish big. I really think this is going to be something like 31-10, you know, 28-13. But I think Irish walk away with a, with a two-three score victory. Okay, yeah, it's pretty optimistic. Um, I'm not that far off from there. I've got 34-17. I do think that we show a little choppiness early on for some of the reasons you mentioned. You know, maybe there's a cone pick. Maybe the offensive line is a little shaky. But I do think certainly by the second half we'll pull it together and, and play well there. Um. So, all that being said, let's wrap up uh, with our closing segment of the week, season openers. We also try to stick to the four main food groups. Candy, candy canes, candy corns, syrup. In our closing segment of the week, we're going to do our inaugural Four Horsemen uh, segment of the week. So, throughout the season, we're going to rank uh, our favorite four or most memorable four of a topic. Um, no, we're not going to talk about our four main food groups, although... For me, that would be nachos, 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 and nachos. Um, but this week, going into the season opener, we're going to talk about our most memorable, not necessarily best, but our most memorable uh, season openers of the Brian Kelly era and, and really of the Brett and Mike friendship era. Yeah, for sure. When we originally came up with the segment for today, we were, we were thinking of just doing favorite Notre Dame season openers, but we when we like thought about it more, we're like, you know what? I think we need, there's some very notable games that were actually, actually losses that have stuck with us that we should also talk about too. Um, so with that intro, Brett, what's, can you kick us off? What's the first game? Yeah. Michigan 2018, uh, Notre Dame won the game 24, 17 heading into it. It was a, you know, top 15 matchup. Um, Wimbush, uh, you know, was starting the season, uh, beat out Ian book for the job. And, and, you know, I, I distinctly remember, too, about that quarterback competition. Three weeks later, I was actually at the Wake Forest game when Ian Book um, took over for Brandon Wimbush. Yeah. And I was really upset with Brian Kelly. I was really high on Brian Wimbu- uh, Brandon Wimbush, especially after how he looked in this Michigan game. So still remember dynamic runner, really controlled the game early. Um, I think the only thing that really kept Michigan in the game was a long kick return that really made the score a lot closer than it was. But... Just a great overall opener and a top 20 matchup for, for the Irish that kicked off a playoff run. It did, yeah. Um, and, and Brett, as you mentioned, so the score, I think, made it seem a little bit closer than it was. From what I remember, you mentioned that they had that return. It was a game that felt like we were in full control the entire time. To be honest, I, I'm surprised that it wasn't, that the, fi- the final point total wasn't, wasn't a blowout. It, it felt like that type of game. It, for sure, just a relaxed, fun, crazy Notre Dame atmosphere. The other thing that always really stands out to me about that game, uh, I always sit in section 19. It's in the south end zone. I'm usually in the front 10 rows. And Wimbush had, I think it was like a 50-yard bomb yeah. to Chris Fink on a middle-of-the-field skinny post out of the slot, beat the safety over the top, and it was right in front of me. I mean, maybe 15 feet away. Yeah. I can still remember Fink going up for that catch bringing it down, celebrating in the end zone. Like, that's just ingrained in my mind is, is just a great moment um, in, in really my Notre Dame fandom. Yeah, likewise. So, fun fact, Brett and I were both at that game together. I was, I was actually sitting right next to him in the stands when that happened. Just an incredible view. It was uh, really a perfect play. Like, that, I think the Fink catch was the pinnacle of that game for me. It was and, just... and, and we had a really good hug uh, between Mike and Brett for, for, for the touchdown celebration as well. Yeah. Stress was a lot lower that game. Brett Brett can be uh, a little colorful with the refs sometimes. <laughs> he was uh, he, he toned it I, down a little bit. I was on my best behavior. The energy was better. Another fun fact, so tailgating scene for that game was, was, was fantastic. A lot of good energy. Brett actually 
he proposed oh, to me no. to be a groomsman in his wedding. Oh, I did. That's yeah, I right. did. Yeah, so yeah. I forgot that was that game. Yeah, so it was during a tailgate. So you know, just further cementing the friendship. That's uh, awesome. Yeah. So oh, just a great game. Again, just like kicked up, kick off to a great year where we made a playoff run. Um, yeah, one of one of my fonder memories uh, from a season opener. Um, you want to tell us about the next one, number three on the list? This <laughs> yeah, one's okay. all you. I, I don't want to revisit this whatsoever. So, yeah, like I said in the intro, Brett wanted to keep this to just like positive season openers. But I, like I said, I thought it would be more interesting if we if we included some some negative ones. So I think in terms of uh, bad experiences, this is about as bad as it gets. So I'm talking about the South Florida game in 2011. Uh, I mean, this one was just like a nightmare. I remember there was a 90, there was a 90 plus, maybe it was 94 yards. I forgot exactly how much it was, but just like a fumble return from a touchdown as we yeah, were moving J- it first. Jonas score. Gray fumbled it on the, on the one yard line as we were about to go into score on the opening drive of the season, turn around and the Irish are down seven nothing on, on a defensive scoop and score. It was, yeah. I remember like my view of that. It looked like we scored. I just remember seeing, you know, the, the refs were not like throwing their hands up for a touchdown. All of a sudden I see a guy just running, a South Florida player just running. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there were five seconds where I had to get to the acceptance stage, uh, where, where I realized that he was actually returning it for a touchdown. But beyond that, Tommy threw, I think he threw a few, a, a few interceptions, just backbreaking interceptions. Uh, yeah, and, pretty and brutal. D- Dane Christ started that game as the starter that the Charlie Weiss recruit holdover into the Weiss era. Um, I can't remember if he got hurt or, or if he got benched. Reese came in, played, played okay, but a couple big turnovers. Thing too that, again, we, we said this segment was memorable. I'm always going to remember one of my memories of that game too is the South Florida coach at the time, Chip Holtz, the son yep. of Notre Dame legend Lou Holtz. So yep. just that connection going into the game, um, you know, got got a lot of attention, got the season off on the wrong foot. But um, certainly, you know, between the 90-minute delay, the fluky plays, the, the close loss to start the season, just – a memorable yeah. opener, not in the right way. Not even, and we haven't even gotten to like the weather delays. So this oh, game had just it was inclement weather, thunderstorms. They had to they had to like pause the game, and people had to go into the I guess you call it the concourse. I, I don't know what they call yeah, it. Concourse. Yeah, concourse. The concourse. So they had that. Everyone just went to the concourse, waited for them, waited for them to announce everyone can come back in. Came back in. Then there was bad weather again. People had to go back into the concourse, and then came back out, and we lost. What I actually did. Rather than waiting in the concourse, I actually walked over to the Eddie Street uh, Five Guys and had a burger during that. <laughs> so everyone was like complaining about it. I was like, I, mean, I was like, hey, I was like, hey, it worked out for me. I got like a pretty good burger out of it. You know, I feel like I feel energized now. You know, I, I distinctly remember being at the Bedford tailgate at Pole Four, and it was so hot out when we were tailgating that in lieu of keg stands, we did ice bucket stands where people would hold up your feet and dunk you into a bucket of ice just to cool you off. So start to finish, that that was a long season opener. Um, started really a long eight and five season yeah. um, our, our, our sophomore year. Let, let's turn to a brighter note. You want to tell us about number two on the list? Uh, so number two on the list... Well, I mean, Brett, I think you have, like, fonder memory. I mean, so I have fond memories of this game, but you, you've been talking about this game a lot. I mean, this is big for any Irish fan. Yeah, um, Michigan 2014, um, we shut them out 31 to nothing. And, of course, the famous Remember the Six, if if you recall in this game, um, Notre Dame had a pick six with about 30 seconds left to go. We're down 31 nothing. Michigan was still trying to put points on the board. We picked it off. We ran it back. The scoreboard flashed 37 nothing. The crowd was going nuts. And then, of course, because we're playing Michigan, a phantom flag out of nowhere um, shows up on the field. They take away the interception and touchdown. Final score ends 31 nothing. Um, and so, of course, always Notre Dame fans, remember the six. We beat Michigan 37 nothing. Do not let anyone convince you that it was 31 to nothing. Yeah, I mean, this was really the one gift that we got from the Brian Van Gorder area. Like, everything else, him squandering, like, the talent that we had different years, um, at least he gave us he gave us this. Uh, I, I think you'll notice with Brett and I, there's a theme that we're, uh, we put two Michigan games in, so that's that's half of the experiences. During our undergrad experience in Notre Dame, the Michigan rivalry really was a defining point for, for each season. Um, I could tell you, for me personally, my, my hatred for Michigan was probably stronger than, than USC most seasons. Um, it's a school that's close by. The schools are very similar. I think any Notre Dame fan will tell you that 
there just seems to be an arrogance with the Michigan fan base. Absolutely. However, if you talk to Michigan fans, they would probably also tell you that there's an arrogance with the Notre Dame fan base. So I think it's like that Spider-Man meme where they're like pointing at each other. You kind of have like that element <laughs> going on with this rivalry. It is a shame that we, we haven't played them as much, uh, recently. So, I mean, I, I don't know though, you know, as we get more into this alliance, not to go off on too much of a tangent here. Um, if the, as we get more into that with like the scheduling component, maybe, maybe this is one of those rivalries that we can start it, resuming a bit more. It'd be great to see it come back. I will say it feels really good that in our inaugural four horsemen section, two of the games we're talking about is, is beating the Michigan Wolverines in Notre Dame Stadium. That just feels really, really good. So with that, Chernay, number one on the four horsemen of season or, uh, season openers is? Uh, so it's Purdue 2010. So not a particularly notable game for most Notre Dame fans, but for Brett and I, this was our, our freshman year in college. So and, and Brian Kelly's first game. And Brian Kelly's first game. And Brian Kelly's first game. So we mentioned before our, our, our time at Notre Dame. And for me personally, my fandom for Notre Dame started at the beginning of Brian Kelly's tenure. Um, this was my first Notre Dame home game. There was just, uh, there's just a, a certain energy and fuel around the program. There was, there was hope. Brian Kelly was a, a big hire coming out of Cincinnati. So I think fans were were very hopeful that he would be able to finally rebuild the program and get it back to where it was. But again, and the, so we had that going on. For me personally, like I said, I was a freshman. I got to experience Notre Dame tailgating for the first time. Um, there were, you see, you'd see a lot of like wide-eyed freshmen uh, at tailgates. You know, a lot of them going a little too hard. There was a guy in my section who, uh, th- this game, he was actually thrown into the Notre Dame uh, drunk tank, basically. So a lot of freshmen who just really didn't know what they were doing. They couldn't control themselves. So you had that going on. And it was also a Notre Dame win. The, the season, this season did get off to a bit of a shaky start, but for this game in particular, we at least, uh, we at least like ended up winning it. So, um, yeah. so that's kind of my story. Brett actually has more, I think on a personal note, he has like more meaningful connection to this game than even I do. Yeah, and, and this is, you know, really our first introduction to the official wife of the Garish Talk podcast, Anne. Um, and my wife, uh, was a freshman at St. Mary's in, in our class and her football tickets were directly in front of mine. And so we actually met at our first football game freshman year. She was sitting in front of me, turned around, asked if I could take a picture of her and her roommate right before kickoff. And the, the rest is history. Started a great friendship that turned into a relationship that has since turned into a marriage and, and it all started on September 4th, 2010, uh, between Notre Dame and, and the Purdue Boilermakers. Yeah, I mean, you talk to, like, a lot of Notre Dame alums. If, if you, when they, when they talk about their relationships with their, their significant others, often they do revolve around experiences like game days. It's not, it's not uncommon. Funny for me, like, living in California, people do like sports there, but college football is definitely not nearly as much of a thing as it is in the Midwest or definitely in the South. Um, when I when I tell them stories of, of friends of mine who have like significant moments related to college football games, I just, I just I'll just get like very bizarre looks. They'll be like, <laughs> like football. Like first off, like the reaction is like football. Like seriously, like you like football. And then secondly, it's like you have like a big, uh, meaningful life experience related to that. Um, so people don't get it as much in California. But I think for anyone who's a, a big Notre Dame fan, uh, you get that, especially if you're a Notre Dame student. So very touching story. We're not going to talk about relationships too much in this podcast we'll bring it up when it's relevant this isn't a bachelor podcast uh <laughs> so but i think this was this was definitely like an interesting story and so i w- another thing i'll say is uh we will also do you the favor of not inserting a borat my wife clip after brett my said wife. that yeah, well i guess brett did it. i wasn't so apologies for that i i, I kind of baited him in there all right, so with that, we are going to close out our Florida State season preview. We will be back next week to recap the game, preview Toledo. And with that, Gyrish and yeah, Bells. Love y'all. Gyrish.